Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Next is produced at Connecticut Public Radio and is powered by the New England News Collaborative. Eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. I'm John Dankosky. Thanks for joining us. On September 23rd in New York, world officials will meet at the U.N. for the Climate Action Summit. Leading up to that event, nearly 200 media organizations and shows like ours have committed to coverage of the global climate crisis. That sort of coverage is a regular feature of Next, and we got thinking about a conversation we had earlier this year about the roots of climate change skepticism in the U.S. and the Republican Party's changing attitudes toward climate, which can be traced to a powerful political machine, the Sununu family of New Hampshire. In a special episode of their Outside In podcast, NHPR's Sam Evans-Brown and environmental reporter Annie Ropeek dug into this history for us. Sam and Annie, welcome to Next. Thanks, Thanks for, for having us. us. So why don't you start by taking us back to the early environmental movements and where the Republican Party stood before John H. Sununu arrived on the scene way back when? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people uh, remember this history, but it always bears uh, bears mentioning that, you know, when the environmental movement first began, Republicans sort of seized onto it enthusiastically. And, and a lot of our landmark imp- environmental protection laws were passed under the presidency of Richard Nixon. So, you know, the EPA, the Clean Water Act, the Clean Air Act, the Toxic Substances Control Act, those were all Nixon era policies. Um, and this was sort of a response to a fear that that this very popular at the time environmental uh, movement would would uh, become the the province of Democrats and Republicans would lose a lot of votes if they didn't get on board. Then fast forward a little bit past the Nixon years and it starts to change a bit in the 1980s. How was climate change perceived during that era? Well, actually, in the 1980s, climate change was was sort of the new scary thing. The the first government uh, sort of summary of climate science came out in 1979. And so the, the federal government was really just beginning to try to wrap its brain around what to do. And there was this very earnest bipartisan discussion about about the science and, and what it meant and, uh, you know, how quickly we would need to act in order to, to head off any sort of negative consequences. Uh, so, so in the 80s, it really wasn't the partisan issue that we see today. And in fact, the science wasn't really up for debate. It was it was really more of a, a, a grappling with with the implications of the science that the policymakers were hearing from, you know, government scientists. So this is where the eldest Sununu comes in again, John H. Sununu. Maybe you can talk about who exactly he, he is and, and what he thought about climate change throughout the early part of his career. Right. John H. Sununu was the governor of New Hampshire starting in 1983. Uh, He was was very popular. He was a very uh, forceful politician, very, very loud, very opinionated. Uh, You know, he crafted an excellent uh, soundbite. But, uh, you know, what he, he sort of leapt to the national stage after helping George H.W. Bush win the New Hampshire primary in in exchange for which uh, George H.W. appointed him his chief of staff. So he became he became uh, the sort of the gatekeeper to the 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 first Bush administration White House. Um, and he saw the environmentalists from the 1970s through the lens of the 
Cold War, I'd say. So he, he believed they were sort of anti-capitalist and had an ulterior motive behind wanting to deal with climate change. He believed that they wanted to transform the econ- economic system and was, they were using climate policy as a, as a way to do that. And, and this was really dating back to he had, he had read the sort of the population bomb in the 1960s. He had read uh, Limits to Growth, which was a report that was put out that forecast sort of economic doom because of environmental, environmental degradation. Uh, and he saw those uh, the predictions made by by those environmentalists and and saw that they didn't go anywhere. In fact, many of them failed to materialize. Uh, and he and he believed that climate change was just sort of the next iteration of this. That, you know, environmentalists forecasting doom and gloom in order to in order to get to what they were really after, which was transformation of the capitalist system. And I actually believe you know it, it, that might have been where his starting point in the 1980s. But this has only sort of hardened over. Over time, And so he, we have some tape of him here in 2013 presenting before a conference put on by the Heartland Institute, and you can really hear it. My message today is to make sure we recognize that no matter how effectively we deal with exposing the errors and games behind that agenda, we need to know that the battle will never end because the issue is not really global warming. This global warming crisis is just the latest surrogate for an overarching agenda of anti-growth and anti-development that grew and gathered support in the years after World War II. What we just heard, Sam, sounds an awful lot like what we hear from many establishment Republicans right now. Where was the rest of the Republican Party, though, back back in the 1980s? How were they thinking about it outside of John H. Sununu? Well, like I said, there were a lot of Republicans who were earnestly concerned about climate change at that time. And and so, you know, I, John H. was sort of present at the birth of the party's internal division about whether to take climate change seriously or not. And at the time, the balance was in favor of action because his his boss, George H.W., had had promised to deal with climate change on the campaign trail. And, and you know, John H. Sununu really stood in the way of that action. So, so we move forward in the story to the next Sununu. This is John E. Sununu. He starts in politics back in the 1990s. Who, who's he and, and how's he different than his dad? So this is John H.'s son. Uh, We've described him as sort of the Paul Ryan of his day. He was a rising star. He was recruited after he was in the U.S. House to run against an incumbent Republican and kind of knock him off in the Senate, and he won. Um, So he he was a, a true conservative of the 90s. He um, even would side with the Democrats sometimes when, you know, he thought that the Republicans weren't going far enough to uphold his conservative principles about privacy uh, and and that sort of thing. So he was sort of the next Sununu to take center stage after his father kind of got out of politics, started getting more into business in the 90s. And was his position on climate change different from, from that of his father? Well, it's interesting. It was communicated in different ways. And we have no way of knowing, you know, that deeply about what he did believe, what he had sort of adopted from his father. Um, but, you know, he remains in public life sort of um, th- through some of the 90s and into the late 2000s or the late aughts. And 
you know, that was amid a much different political context than his father was part of as far as climate change goes. So we saw uh, him in office at a time when Republicans were willing to talk about market-based solutions to climate change. There were carbon cap-and-trade bills and emissions reductions bills being put forth by people like John McCain. And um, we saw John E. Sununu, again, the son, working with Delaware Democrat Tom Carper on uh, climate change-related bills. So there was some momentum toward this. All of those bills ultimately fizzled. And, you know, there's some question of of how genuine those efforts were, how genuine, again, John E.'s feelings on the subject were, which, again, we have no way of knowing. But, you know, he talks about the topic much differently than we ever heard his father talking about it. He sounds much more open to the kind of solutions Democrats favor today. But again, you know, none of those came to pass. So it's all sort of speculation at this point. But, but there is this moment that you capture here, and I think we've got some tape, Annie, where you, you can actually hear that Republicans and Democrats maybe aren't exactly uh, agreeing on all the principles, but, but they're at least standing together talking about this as an important issue. Hi, I'm Nancy Pelosi, lifelong Democrat and Speaker of the House. And I'm Newt Gingrich, lifelong Republican, and I used to be Speaker. We don't always see eye to eye, do we, Newt? No, but we do agree our country must take action to address climate change. So that's one of my favorite sound bites that we found for this piece, because, I mean, that would just be just comically unimaginable in today's political environment. I think if you played that for Newt and Nancy today, they, you know, would probably pretend not to remember that it had happened. So that was the kind of political environment that John E. was working in. So, you know, being a conservative on climate change meant something much different than it meant either to his father or to some of his brothers, who we also talk about in the podcast. I I, I really like that piece of tape because they just deliver those lines so convincingly. (laughs) Oh, yeah. (laughs) Um, So this all leads us to the Sununu who's still in politics today. This is Chris Sununu, currently the governor of New Hampshire. What do we know about his positions on climate change and how those are different from those of his father and his older brother? So Governor Chris Sununu has been much more sort of circumspect and and hedged quite a bit more on this topic than um, some of his other politician uh, family members. We've seen his rhetoric on the subject shift over the years, even if maybe his policy positions don't so much. You know, he's a, a leader of a purple state in a very titchy political environment for a Republican like him. And so, you know, climate action is a little bit um, of a, a non-starter, I think, for a lot of people in his party at this time. I and mean, we're seeing th- that's why that Newt Gingrich clip is so absurd to us now, because it's just not something that the party talks about that way anymore. But um, but we do see Chris at least sort of shifting away from questioning some of the basic scientific consensus about climate change, which he used to do when he was first running for governor several years ago, to now um, um, f- facing the science a little bit more and, and framing it quite a bit differently. And this is some tape from him on um, NHPR's show, The Exchange, from late last year. Man-made admissions have a, a part to play in climate change. Yes, fact, done. Let's move on, right? What are we go To your original question, what are we going to do about it? Right, what right? do you do yeah, about it? Yeah, what are we going to do about it? And that's where my focus is, is in terms of what is a, a, an appropriate, not just role, but a uh, position to be in terms of making sure that we're being responsible, uh, we're helping the environment, we're looking at the social impacts. And again, we're just in a, a tougher place than a lot of other states when it comes to the economic impact, because we're already so burdened with these incredibly high electric rates. So that's been Chris Sununu's main focus is on electric rates, the energy implications of climate change, and just the economic impacts in general. We don't hear him talk so much about 
uh, other issues that are going to affect us here in northern New England, like sea level rise or snow loss, even though his family does still have ties to the ski industry. They own Waterville Valley, which is a ski area in northern New Hampshire. Um, but we don't hear him talk about that so much. And really, the conversation he's leading in New Hampshire is much more about renewable energy, uh, energy rates and sort of the push-pull of the energy transition and how it's going to affect citizens. So what about the Republican Party today? We've got all these sununus in the way that they've shifted their message over time, sometimes to fit the political mood, sometimes out of a, a real sense that they believe something strongly. How would you characterize the party's attitude toward climate change right now? Well, I'd say, you know, it's a party at, at war with itself. I think a, a really good example of this is that there's one more Sununu to mention, which is Michael Sununu, who has never held any sort of prominent statewide elected office, but but who has made himself something of a public figure in his, his writings, where he has been very publicly questioning mainstream climate science and, uh, and whether there, you know, it, climate change is something that is of concern and whether it is something that we should be taking action on here at sort of the New England level in order to deal with. Um, and, you know, so so we do still have the, the, the Michael Sununu type voices out there within the Republican Party pushing very hard against any sort of climate action. But it, you know, and maybe this is a bit Pollyanna of me, but it does seem like the party is at something of an inflection point because public opinion really is running away from them. I mean, the, the difference between, between uh, the Republican base's opinions on climate change and the rest of the country is getting wider and wider. In our episode, we were relied on a gentleman named Jerry Taylor, who's part of something called the Niskanen Center. And he he told us that he believes that there is something of a political window of opportunity for Republicans that may open soon on this subject. Right now, most elected, I would say most elected Republicans are not the sort of uh, blind denialists that uh, seem to inhabit the White House. Now, that doesn't mean that they're ready to ambitiously act, but their minds are open. One of the, th- the only common denominator to the Republican Party from the time of Lincoln to the time of Trump, and there is only one common denominator, is that it's always been the party business, always. And as climate change becomes more and more of a problem, it's going to cause more and more losses to businesses. I would just add to that that he's talking there about ski industry businesses, that kind of thing, for example, recreation and agriculture. But it also, for me, brings to mind, again, energy. I mean, just here in New Hampshire, just in recent months over the past year, maybe we've seen a real shift, I think, in the way that our large utilities are talking about renewable energy and are, you know, sort of the openness they're exhibiting to spending more money on that, to looking at less traditional energy solutions, um, the kind of stuff that some of our Republican leadership, including Governor Chris Sununu, have been a little hesitant about because they're worried about uh, the impacts to electric ratepayers. But uh, I'm really interested to see sort of as that shift happens in the business world, as they see more potential for profit and decarbonization, you know, how that may sort of draw the Republicans forward on this issue in a new way. Annie Ropeek is NHPR's energy and environment reporter. Sam Evans-Brown is host of Outside In, their great podcast. They co-hosted the recent Outside In episode, The Family Business. You can find a link to the full episode at nextnewengland.org. Annie and Sam, thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate it. Thank, Thank you. you, John. Coming up, a new poetry book will be your compass through the Pioneer Valley. But first, serving a better school lunch. It's next.
Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters, who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative and its coverage of climate change and the evolving clean energy economy. Support also comes from Douglas Stone and Mary Schwab Stone through the Smart Family Foundation of New York. You know those airplane meals you get in pre-frozen packages, heated up in the back of the plane with condensation leaking from the plastic lid? Yeah, they're not too terribly appetizing, but for years, that's what many kids in school around the country have been getting for lunch every day. And for many of them, that meant not eating all day. Some of us don't even eat the whole day because the food's bad. Did you eat this? Nope. So what did you really eat for lunch today? This and a cheese stick is what you had for lunch and nothing else? Nope. All I had was milk. All you had for lunch for today was milk? I had carrots and milk. What did you have, Carl? Carrots and milk. Carrots and milk, what did you have? I had the sun butter. You had the sun butter? Yeah. What I had? What did you have for lunch? Four cheese sticks and milk. Four <laughs> cheese sticks and milk and nothing else for lunch today? Yep. What did you have for breakfast? Nothing. That's Erica Herman, the principal of the Gardner Pilot Academy in Boston, talking with her students about what they eat for lunch from a new documentary called Eat Up. The documentary follows Jill Shaw, a Boston-based entrepreneur and philanthropist, as she sets out to change the lunches in Boston's public schools, working to bring fresh, nutritious food to students around the city. Fiona Turner directed the documentary, and they both joined us in studio. Turner started with the history of the school lunch program. It was in the 1970s when big food companies started to move into this area and school districts were looking for cheaper ways to to feed kids. And the food companies came up with uh, processed food. And we all know what happened after that. Processed meals became part of our diet and they were allowed through um, legislation to make an appearance in schools. So from the 70s onwards, we've had... um, food management service companies providing food in plastic wraps that's frozen that sometimes you you have this crazy situation where the apples might be grown in Oregon they're then flown across the country they're they're delivered to a processing plant in in New York where they're processed frozen and then they're shipped up to Boston and everybody knows in New England we we grow fantastic apples so it's it's kind of a ridiculous uh, s- scenario, but it's it's uh, very popular because big processing companies can make food very cheaply, and the school districts, if they're not thinking about this and it's not top of their priorities, they're they're looking at easy options. So that's that's how we've arrived at where we are today. But the food system, Jill, that Fiona just described, though, isn't just the food system for many schools around the nation. It's essentially our food system in a nutshell. We are all eating foods from far, far away, processed in one place and then shipped to our homes. And it's all done because there are corporations that make money doing this and it's a lot cheaper for us to feed this way. So as you tried to disrupt the system, what were the things you had to overcome? What were the things you you thought to change? Yeah. So, I mean, we looked at it from an economic standpoint, first and foremost, to see if the budgets would allow for feeding kids differently. And um, I think you're exactly right, right? Like the food business only grows as big as our stomachs grow as consumers. And so we are the receptacle and the producer of all of their profits. And that's fine, right? From a consumer perspective, we we should be able to decide to eat whatever we want and to respond to whatever marketing gets pushed to us. But when you're talking about a USDA subsidy, that is you know, intended to feed and serve the most impoverished, the most needy of our country, profit, it just, you know, and I, I've 
built businesses and I've and I've worked in the corporate private sector forever. It it was a little disturbing that that we're generating profit on the backs of some of our, you know, neediest citizens. And so when we looked at how do you shift the the budget in order to spend it in a way where kids get access to better food? One, we realized, you know, in the city of Boston, and this is true across the country, lots of schools don't have kitchens. And so they have warming ovens and they have freezers. And, and that is why we have this packaged food business, right? We, they don't, we don't have any way to cook closely to, to the children. But if you put in these micro kitchens, which we developed alongside of private sector businesses who are serving fast casual meals to tens of thousands of consumers a day, we realize, wow, it's really pretty inexpensive to put in these kitchens. And so the initiative that's been happening in Boston is to outfit all of the schools with kitchens. As soon as we do that, we then can produce you know, meals for kids directly in front of them. And so that changes the kind of food we can buy. We can buy all whole real food. It all comes directly into those kitchens. It's then chopped and sliced and diced and tossed with spices and sauces and cooked right in front of the kids. And we, the other thing we added to the mix, which actually has an, was driven by, by economics, is, is we deconstructed meals. And we know kids like to actually choose. You know, they like to make choices. They don't want things on top of each other sometimes. And so our delivery system lets every kid choose what they want every day, which then also creates interactions with the staff. It creates conversations, community. It, it, it drives confidence in children who then decide what they want. They take it to the table. They eat it because it's been their choice. So there's all of these other ramifications of being able to deliver whole, real, f- delicious food to kids that we didn't really think about until we started to test it in the field. And so those things have been incredible. It's also it's also helped us create three times as many local jobs. And all of this is happening for less than what we used to pay the, for the vended meal program. I, I want to get, though, to some of the challenges that you faced when trying to implement uh, these programs. I want to listen to a clip from the documentary Eat Up. Uh, this is Jenny Hall. She's cafeteria manager for East Boston High, whose cafeteria was, was hub for this pilot project. I've been here 23 years. I never did this. Now we're running around at 4 o'clock in the afternoon. We're here cooking turkeys. Aren't they getting paid, though? Nobody's getting paid. Just me and Martha right now. They're not getting nothing extra. They work eight hours. That's it. The union's got to step in, and the union's got to say, okay, everybody's on the same page. And, Jill, what we're hearing there and and what we see in Fiona's documentary is the exasperation of food workers who've never had to do in their jobs all of the things that it takes to prepare a fresh and nutritious locally sourced meal. So so talk about getting through those challenges. So the the challenges are change management challenges that you come up against anytime you try to change anything where humans are involved, right? Because we were trying to go very, very fast in order to meet timelines and deadlines that you know, were happening around city budget and city planning. And really, the best kind of change management happens with, you know, at the right pace, and so that, you know, people can shift and really buy into things. And so that clip is a great example of where, you know, a sense of urgency was clashing against just the explanations that were needed and the love and care to kind of move the whole engine in a new direction. If I can just add to that, I think that was what it made for an interesting uh, documentary from my perspective, was seeing all of these changes taking place on the ground. Jill and her team would come at this from from a business perspective, see what needed to be done, and then then instrument the change. And the change actually hits in the cafeteria floor, where suddenly there's a lot of people who are having to adapt and uh, having to take on uh, a a new role. And um, that's what was going to make for an interesting 
making film from from my perspective. And, um, you know, it wasn't all good. So some of them adapted. Jenny Hall is actually, we, we see, we hear from her in this moment and she's exasperated, but actually she rallies. She she carries the team. But there were other women uh, uh, and other, other staff who, who were less able. And uh, I think that is probably one of the challenges when you are enterprising a new system is to get everybody on board and recognize that not everybody is going to be able to deal with those changes. So how has this turned out so far since since the documentary, during the filming of the documentary? Do, do you have a sense, Jill, of, of how successful it's been? Yeah, I mean, it's it's been incredibly successful. So that pilot that the film documents was with four schools. The decision was made that December to build 30 more kitchens in schools. So those 30 were built last summer. And then Food Nutrition Services rolled out this new program that we call My Way Cafe to 30 schools. And then um, next year, the mayor just made an announcement a couple of weeks ago that all of Dorchester and all of South Boston will receive My Way Cafe. Jill Shaw is an entrepreneur, a philanthropist, who's working to change the lunches served at Boston Public Schools. Fiona Turner is the director and producer of a documentary about this project. It's called Eat Up. Fiona and Jill, thank you both for joining me. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you very much. We found another place that's trying to change the way we think about food, Stonington, Connecticut. This historic eastern Connecticut town has always revolved around the ocean, but now a 250-year-old farm wants to diversify the food economy in more ways than one. It's become a hub to learn about what we eat and how to value the men and women who produce our food. From WSHU, Cassandra Basler reports. Rows of spinach, broccoli, and herbs line a greenhouse at Stoneacre Farms in the seaside community of Stonington. Amy Hussey, try some organic spinach. Delicious. Hussey is the chef at Oyster Club, a farm-to-table restaurant in nearby Mystic. Part of her job is ordering fresh produce here. She says she feels... Very spoiled. Um, It definitely makes cooking at home a lot harder because (laughs) there's so much here to choose from all the time. So yeah, I mean, it it just makes you more appreciative and aware of everything that you're buying and what you're surrounded by and what's available. So Hussey says she's more aware of who puts food on the table, too. Less than 7% of restaurants are run by female chefs like herself, but women own about 40% of farms in the state. This prompted a special event at the farm to celebrate the surprising amount of women who work in the local food economy. You don't think about it right off the bat. So it was kind of astonishing when we started putting everything together and thinking about, wow, it really is a lot of females. Stone Acres Farm has fostered a network of women working in the farm-to-table industry. Jane Miser is co-owner. Miser says she's been inspired by strong women who have played a role in her family business since they built the farm in 1765. My grandmother's force absolutely is is very much within the walls of this house and this property. And I just remember with her making current jelly and having the currants boiling on the electric stove in the kitchen and just spending time with her with that. When her grandparents died, the farm sat vacant for eight years. Then she and her husband, who owned several local restaurants, had an idea. A lot of these larger properties are very expensive to maintain. So how can small farms in New England survive on something besides just farming? So they rallied investors. They got special zoning to run businesses on the property. 
Now other farms look to Stone Acres as a model because it makes money hosting weddings, a farm stand, dinners, and events. Like this one, a panel that invited food producers to discuss how they think the industry should change. They're all women who supply meat, fish, and more to local restaurants. But anthropologist Rachel Black from Connecticut College introduces them not as women, simply as experts. Women have always been there. I just want to say that. Women have always been in the fields, in the kitchens, um, in boats, on the ocean, in the sea, uh, in every aspect of food production. We've always been there. One expert is Rachel Slattery from Rhode Island. So I I joke that male-dominated industries are like where I've spent all my life (laughs) there. Slattery worked on fishing boats for several years before she founded Wild Harmony Farm with her husband. She realized she couldn't afford to eat the kind of grass-fed beef she wanted, so she learned to raise it herself. I also really believe that Without education, there's no sense in even really caring about food at all, right? If we're not learning about how it's being grown, who's growing it, how to cook it, how to source it, all of that, how to budget for it, it's just like we can't make this work. We're all going to end up at McDonald's. The yellow farmhouse at Stone Acres is one place where people can learn about this sort of thing. Jen Rothman is the education director on the farm. She works with kids as young as three years old. Rothman shows them how to pull a carrot out of the ground and chop it for supper. It's not so innovative, except that it's just not done anymore. I mean, people have been cooking together and learning from um, parents and grandparents and community members forever. Rothman believes making and sharing meals together changes our relationship to food. It makes it a little bit more special, and um, I'm, I hope, th- I think the innovative part is using that as really a mechanism to get people to care more deeply about the people who are growing our food and about the soil that it's coming from. Here in Stonington, a small farming community may inspire a new generation to slow down and enjoy a seat at the table. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Cassandra Basler in Connecticut. Coming up, how Dr. Seuss was shaped by the places he'd go. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the John Merck Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative and its coverage of climate and clean energy. Support also comes from the Melville Charitable Trust. Dr. Seuss was born Theodore Geisel in Springfield, Massachusetts. It's hardly an environment with oddly shaped trees lining the streets and strangely named animals walking down them. But as author Brian J. Jones learned, His New England upbringing and Dartmouth education did shape Geisel's work. His book is called Becoming Dr. Seuss, Theodore Geisel and the Making of an American Imagination. 
Jones explained for us earlier this year what Geisel's childhood in Springfield was like. Theodore Geisel was born in Springfield in 1904 and is very much a product of that time. And Springfield, Massachusetts, when I was researching the book, I, I always really loved to go and see where people live. Sense of place is really important to me. And you can actually see a lot of Springfield still there um, that influence, it show, ends up showing up in a lot of his books later. There's a lot of interesting architecture and the down in the in the cemetery, there's really interesting sculpture with a lot of stairs and a lot of pillars in it. The gunnery is still there with the the archways and the and the turrets on it, which looks like something out of out of Bartholomew Cubbins. So so there's a lot of architecture there that really influenced him and shows up in a lot of his later work. Uh, his father was the head of the park system and took him regularly to the zoo right there in Springfield. So he did have a <laughs> he did have a sense of animals, though, as he said later. Um, you know, when he started to draw them, he just put the knees where he thought they should go. He didn't actually really have a sense of anatomy. Anatomy. But there's a lot of Springfield that shows up in there, and it, you would really see it especially in in his first book, and to think that I saw it on Mulberry Street. Uh, there is a real Mulberry Street in Springfield. It does not intersect with some of the streets they name in the book, but, you know, that's a Springfield influence there as well. When that book first came out, it just it blew out of the local bookstore the night before it even went on sale. All the locals had to get a copy of that book. So it was very influential in sort of shaping, you know, the artist he would later become. You quote a passage of, uh, and to think that I saw it on Mulberry Street to help describe his childhood. And here it is. It's stop telling such outlandish tales. Stop turning minnows into whales. Uh, you write, but for Ted himself, turning minnows into whales was, was all part of the fun. Can, can you talk about that? Because it's such, a, such an interesting idea. Yeah, and actually that influenced the way he was his entire life, uh, which, which makes it as a biographer sometimes very frustrating and very fun as well. He always liked a good story almost more than he liked the truth a lot of the time. So a lot of times there's a little nugget of truth in a story he's telling, and he's embellished it, usually to make it funnier. He really likes the stories to be funny. But I, he really did love that telling of tales. And, and there's, a, it, he, there's a story he told quite often about why he didn't like public speaking. Uh, and the story goes that you were selling uh, Liberty Bonds during World War One, and um, whoever sold the most bonds, they would they would bring ten boys up on stage, and they were going to be given medals by Colonel Roosevelt, the former president, Teddy Roosevelt. And in the story, he's standing out on stage with all these other boys, and Roosevelt's going down the line and pinning medals on all the boys, and gets to the end of the row, and he's out of medals, and looks at young Ted Geisel and says, you know, what the hell is this kid doing here? And hustles him off stage. Uh, for the rest of his life, Geisel would talk about how he was just mortified, how this had scarred him for life, how he hated appearing in front of crowds because of this. I couldn't find any evidence of any of that happening. I know I know Roosevelt was there. I looked at the pictures on the front page of the paper. There's no collection of Boy Scouts there getting medals. <laughs> so uh, so it's one of those things. But, but it's a great story. And there's enough truth in it that Roosevelt was there. Uh, he did talk about the importance of Liberty Bonds probably acknowledged the boys that had won them. But, uh, you know, there's a lot of details then built onto the story that are really hard to verify, but again, make for a really great story. So how do you handle that as a biographer as you try to run down the the tales, maybe tall tales told by someone who's a, a gifted, born storyteller? And probably he told those stories to all the people who, who ever knew him. So they believe those stories are true, too. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And, you know, and even in his life, he would say something like, I, I read these, you know, these short pieces on me in the newspapers and these things that are supposed to be biographies of my life. And uh, they're full of these tall tales that usually I started myself. So he, you know, he knew he was part of the problem. What you have to do as a biographer is just keep going to the tape as much as possible. 
possible. Try to, you know, like like I did with the Roosevelt story, go to the newspaper record at the time, find out, was Roosevelt really there? That was one of the first questions I had to ask. So, you know, try to try to back it up factually as much as you can. The issue you've got with Dr. Seuss is, you know, he died 25 years ago at age eight, you know, 87. So most of his contemporaries are gone. There's, you can't talk to his, you know, his mother or his father or his sister or any, and he had no children. So there weren't a lot of people growing up with him who could verify these stories or not. So a lot of times it's trying to find out what the actual record was on where people were. But the other thing you can do with him is he tells stories countless times and you can see him adding details as he goes along and embellishing them. So if you go back far enough, a lot of times you can probably get close enough to the story. And what you finally have to do with the biographers, there's times you have to throw up your hands and just say, according to Ted at that point. (laughs) What was his time at Dartmouth College like? So his time at Dartmouth, the most important thing that happened to him at Dartmouth is he, by his senior year, became editor of Jack-O-Lantern, the, the humor magazine. Was not a fantastic student. Again, there was a lot of embellishment in his own story on how he got into Dartmouth and so on. He was very um, influenced by an English teacher there in Springfield who I think really appealed on his behalf to Dartmouth and helped get him in. And, you know, it was, in a way, it was kind of the local college. It's hard to believe now, but, like, you know, if you didn't know where you're going, you just kind of went up river to Dartmouth. You know, it's funny because somebody who came from a German-speaking family um, listened to the German language all the time, which I think is actually important in his development as as a writer and his sense of words and his sense of rhythm is growing up in a household where your aunts and uncles and your parents, everybody could speak German. He actually ends up getting only a B in German. I think the only time he ever gets an A, he has an A one semester in German. But even German courses at Dartmouth, he's getting B's and C's in. So, uh, so he's not really there to do a lot of studying. But it was really important to him from day one when he walked in. He was determined to be editor-in-chief of that humor magazine and ended up ended up being there. And that's where he really starts to play with the form and start developing a little bit more as an artist, as a cartoonist, and as a writer, which I think is really important. He's not just drawing. He's actually writing text pieces there at Jack-O-Lantern. When he gets out of Dartmouth, he begins a a career as an illustrator and a successful career. And I'm wondering about how he makes the transition from from using one part of his talents then into the work that he's so well known for today. Well, you know, it's interesting because after he leaves Dartmouth, he goes to Oxford for a year because he wants to become an English teacher and gets over to Oxford and once again has zero interest in doing really any studying, but is filling up his college notebook with drawing after drawing after drawing and meets a young woman in class uh, named Helen Palmer, who would end up being his wife, who is looking at these notebooks and says, you know, you shouldn't be out there teaching English. Somebody like you with this talent, you should be drawing for a living. And he agrees she's right and he agrees with her so much that he marries her. Uh, and they move and they move back over here and, and he's really trying to make it as a cartoonist. And it's it's hard to believe, but this is a day when you could you could make a living submitting cartoons to the New Yorker and Vanity Fair and Judge and things like that. He's trying to just find his way with these one panel cartoons. Lots of cartoons about drinking. He, people used to look for cartoons by Dr. Souse at one point. You know, he's, he's really finding his way, trying to figure out how to make a living doing this. Does end up sort of scraping into it and becomes more and more popular as he goes. And he's writing text pieces in Judge magazine. So, again, it's not just the art. It's the writing that he's learning how to do. Uh, and that's really when, he, when he's getting started. But the art, when you see these, don't necessarily still look like what we think of as Dr. Seuss. For one thing, there's a lot of people in them. Um, which we don't normally get in Dr. Seuss cartoons. What happens with him while he's making his way as a cartoonist is he ends up drawing a cartoon of a knight in bed with a dragon's head in its lap. And the the caption is, you know, darn it all, another dragon. And here I just had the place sprayed with flit, which was a bug spray at the time. <laughs> Pretty good joke. But what happened was the head of the advertising firm that was doing the flit ad campaign saw that cartoon and hired him based on that cartoon 
to become their ad man for the foot campaign. So for 17 years then after that, Dr. Seuss is making his living doing Flit ad campaigns. It, it, they're owned by Standard Oil, so he's doing motor oil campaigns and boat oil, things like that. But Flit is the big campaign he's doing. So that's really paying his bills while he's drawing the cartoon still and he's writing for Judge. But his contract with Standard Oil is very exclusive in the sense that he can't take a lot of other outside work. He's permitted to do some of his cartoons, but he can't do a lot of a lot of other things. And he sort of found that creatively stifling in a way. And so he was looking for other things he could do but was restricted by that contract. Well, one of the things he was not um, restricted from doing was writing and drawing books for children. So as he always said later, you know, I'd, I'd like to be able to tell you that I got into this because I felt this compelling need to tell stories for children. And, and that would come later. But mainly he did it because there was money on the table. He was permitted under his contract to do a book for children. And so he was on an ocean voyage. Uh, they got caught in a storm and he's sitting in the bar, as he was usually inclined to do, and listening to the thrum of the engines uh, deep down in the boat and that rhythm, that regular rhythm of the engines, he started writing words to it. And that's when he started adding, and that is a tale that no one can beat. And to think that I saw, you know, working with the rhythm of the book and to think that I saw it on Mulberry Street. So that's when he starts writing the, the, the verse that becomes, and to think that I saw it on Mulberry Street. One of the things I want to ask you about, and you, of course, have to tackle this in your biography, is his his politics and the fact that he is in many ways a, a very problematic character. C- can you talk about that complexity and, and sure. perhaps the, the political side of, of Dr. Seuss and what he truly believed in? Yeah, Dr. Seuss's own politics are very, probably today we would call them very progressive. Um, you know, very liberal. Um, at the time, back in World War II and in the years leading up to World War II, he was drawing editorial cartoons for a very left-leaning newspaper in New York called PM. He has he has some problematic moments. Some of his really problematic moments actually come in his early advertising days, back in the 20s. But, but the way he portrays Asian Americans in his World War II cartoons is, is sort of consistent with every other bit of U.S. propaganda. If you look at the posters they show you at the National Archives here, they're really terrible. Um, and it's not a good look for him. And where he really should have known better, um, the one that really gets a lot of a lot of traction, it's the one people pull up and really still talk about today. He really fell hook, line, and sinker for the argument that Japanese Americans should be in these camps. And it's it's a terrible look for him. And he should have known better because, as we talked about earlier, when he was a child, he was guilted by association. People were throwing rocks at him because he was German and he was a German-American and we were at war with Germany. Um, he was doing to Japanese-Americans what his own childhood friends had done to him. Uh, so that one's a really bad look for him. He really fell for the propaganda that was coming out of the Department of Defense on that one. In his lifetime, you know, he was asked about this. And what he said was, you know, he's... He said, I thought back then this stuff was kind of funny. And I look at it nowadays and I'm, you know, I'm really not so sure. So I think it was something he even struggled with. But apart from that, and I'm not dismissing this, if you look at his other editorial cartoons at the time, he like he really had Charles Lindbergh's number. He did not like the anti-Semitic junk that that uh, that Lindbergh was spewing at that time, really went after him hard, you know, really goes after the KKK, really goes after the U.S. government, for example, when they're not issuing government contracts to African-American businesses. There's a great cartoon of um, somebody sitting playing a piano and Uncle Sam standing behind him and says, you know, it sounds a lot better when you use both the black and the white keys. So so there's a lot of progressive politics going on along with some of those problems. But I, I believe he evolved over his lifetime. And I don't think you can be somebody who's writing a book like The Sneeches and not mean it. 
he, he came back to Springfield in 1986 for the town's 350th anniversary celebration. What kind of reception did he get? He was a rock star. I mean, this is the Beatles coming back to Liverpool almost. <laughs> yeah, and he hadn't been home in a long time. His father was still living there and, and had moved away and he had to put him in a home. But he comes back to visit and the mayor of Springfield was very clever because saw that Ted was getting a degree somewhere close by. I can't remember where, but somewhere close enough by. He said, hey, you should, you should come by Springfield. And Dr. Seuss is very serious about this. You know, he comes back and he says, I don't want to I don't want to make speeches. I don't want big dinners and receptions. I just want to enjoy you and I want to enjoy Springfield. And the mayor takes most of that to heart, does put him on a bus and kind of ferries him around town and shows him shows him the sights. But there's a great moment when he actually the bus pulls onto Mulberry Street and he steps out of that. And his wife is so shocked because he actually wants to step out of the bus. And it's just the street is just lined with hundreds and hundreds of children and teachers and librarians steps out of that bus and just I mean, the crowd goes crazy and children are pressing forward and he's trying to shake all their hands. And uh, and they all shout out, thank you, thank you, Sam, I am, at him. And uh, and he gets back on that bus, and he's really choked up. And, uh, and he kind of looks over at his wife, and he, and he mouths the words, wow. That's one of those moments in his life where it really hit him that, uh, you know, what he had done had, had mattered and made a difference. I think he knew conceptually it did. But I think that moment right there, again, being treated like the Beatles in your hometown, really, really made an impact on him. It's a really neat moment. Brian J. Jones is author of Becoming Dr. Seuss, Theodore Geisel, and the Making of an American Imagination. Brian, thanks so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Thank you. This has been great. We'll finish our program near where Dr. Seuss grew up in the lush landscape of the Pioneer Valley. New England Public Radio's Carrie Healy introduces us to some poets who have created a book meant to serve as your compass to a place where it's, well, where it's easy to get lost. For some reason, I was standing in a field of dirt beside the Connecticut River on a sunny but cold day talking with bookseller and poet Forrest Proper. It's beautiful here when you get the whole vista of the Connecticut River. It should inspire more poetry. More people should stand out here on a 12-degree day in December and be inspired to write poems. Andy wrote one. Memory in the fields is slate and soil and dry brushwood smoke. Fire red rock hearthstones grilling maize. Firecracker popping summer nights. Fire red embers of years turning cold. Our memories... Proper's poem, The Fields of Hatfield, is one among more than a hundred previously unpublished poems in a small, recently released book called Compass Roads. It was edited by the prolific author and editor Jane Yolen. I see it as a kind of compass that you could have with you when you travel around the valley. Oh, and go, oh, wait a minute, there's a poem about this, and then stop and read that poem aloud when you're at the place. Though they're all about the Pioneer Valley, there are rhymed poems, non-rhymed poems, poems about people and about place. You know, some of them are going to be very surprising to people. Poet Marion Kent wrote one of the book's surprising poems, The Setting, a gas station in the city of Springfield. Her poem is just 11 lines long. A protest of crows met at the Sunoco, sending contingents across Armory Street in Springfield, American crows in a tumult calling news of fumbled rebellion, more ignominy than murder, more sorrow than resistance. I wrote this poem just after the election, actually, in 2016. And on Armory Street, I would drive there every day as part of my work commute. In the fall, there is actually an amazing display of bird life flying overhead. It's not happening right now, but after work, um, there would be a huge number, hundreds of these crows flying back and forth across the street. 
I was still thinking about birds as I drove 60 miles northwest towards the hills to understand and absorb a poem by Diana Gordon that coincidentally also talks about birds. It's called On West Hill Road. Blinkered to keep them from spooking at the wild turkeys on the stone wall. Here's an excerpt. My car and I stop for the slender hens, like a clique of schoolgirls with straight calves ignoring the boys. Puffed out toms working so hard to be noticed. All those erect, exhausting feathers, heads exploding blue ice, waddled red stoplights shining through the mist. Gordon says her poem was inspired by the geography and history of Holly. It's way high and it's very twisty and windy. I was passing farmhouses and thinking what it was like to build this road and be up here. Did you take into account the whole Compass Roads idea? Did you know what Jane Yolen was proposing in this? No, no. In fact, my poems are often more of imagination and and reach further than this and reach way further out of my life. Um, this was a poem of place, but I had no idea that Compass Road was coming. And, uh, you know, the whole road and the whole idea came from this trip up the road and and the idea of the farmhouses that I was passing. So it's, it's, it is site-specific in a way, but um, a poem often is a snapshot of a larger truth. And, and the turkeys were very real. <laughs> Now, do you think about uh, the experience of the reader um, actually packing the the book into the car and going on a ride? No. (laughs) (laughs) No, you know, I think probably this is the kind of book that you... (laughs) It's much less romantic. You probably put it in your bathroom and you pick it up every now and again when you need to and read a poem or two. Compass Roads, a book of poems about a region that you can read anywhere. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Carrie Healy. The New England News Collaborative is powered by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, Connecticut Public Radio, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, New England Public Radio, WBUR, WSHU, and the Publix Radio.